0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Grumpy Surfer podcast. I'm the Grumpy Surfer and your host, Ads Lyson. Well, what a couple of weeks it's been since the last podcast with Emil and Russia has decided to invade the Ukraine. The Hawaiian leg of the WSL has finished with some amazing surfing at Pipeline and sunset. And I've done a few really cool podcasts with people that are going to be coming out in the next month or so. So before we get started today, I would like to try and get you guys, if you're looking to improve your surfing technique, go to ombi.co, which is Ocean Mind Body Equipment. I've been using Umby since October and it's improved my surfing no end. I know I've talked about this numerous times on the podcast before, but it really, really has. It's an amazing platform and an amazing program. And Ant and Clayton, our neighbor, have really got something special going along with their team. So so if you put into your web browser, ombi.co forward slash ref forward slash grumpy surfer, you'll get 10% off the 12-week program or any of the other programs when you go onto the website and you will not regret it, I promise you. I've got a few little thoughts about what's going on in the world at the moment, if I'm perfectly honest, and I'm not really political, so forgive me if it sounds like I am. But from 12 years of going away, fighting different wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, it's bringing lots of things back and just almost like how meaningless war fighting is and and the life and the sacrifice that people go through there's definitely some hidden side to why Russia is going into the Ukraine I've only been watching snippets of the news so I can't really comment on that but what I do take my hat off to is the patriotism of the Ukrainian people that are standing up in droves males females young people going up and taking up arms to support their country and, and, and fight back the so-called oppressor, I guess. And it's quite it's quite warming that humanity is, hasn't lost its soul. And I think it's difficult for NATO and the other Western countries to really put their two pence worth into it, because I think if we go into this and we put boots on the ground, that is going to start a third world war. And nobody wants that. And every now and again when I'm watching the news, I can almost feel the empathy of the Ukrainian people because what's it going to be like this time next year? Are the Russians going to be going across through into Europe? Are they going to be hitting the coastline of France? Are they going to be looking to get their navy and come across the channel to the UK? Or come across that you know, northern border of Norway? and and come to the borders of the UK and if you think about it retrospectively it's quite a scary thought how do I feel about that having a young family just retired from the military as well and I think I would do exactly the same thing and anybody that has an ounce of something in them not being heroic it's standing up for something that's wrong and showing that you can do something about it everybody can do something about it Anyway, those are my thoughts anyway. So I'm digressing the touch. So this week's podcast is with a guy who was actually a poster boy of mine, along with Tom Carroll, Oki, Kelly Slater, Shane Dorian, Rob Machado, Goofy Futter, Australian Surfer. He was on the ASP, which is now the WSL, so the Association of Surfing Professionals and the World Surf League. He was on the ASP for 22 years, retired and then became a surf coach and coached the likes of Joel Parkinson and a few other up and coming Australian surfers that are around now. He was one of the guys that really showed style from having that drop knee kind of surf stance and showed the fluidity of what surfing could be if you really put some time and effort into your technique. So without further ado, please enjoy my podcast with Luke Egan. Luke Egan, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much. It's welcome, uh, The welcome's accepted and I'm happy to be here.
0: Three questions, mate, before we start. How are you? where are you and are you surfing today
1: i'm really good um i'm in Cronulla, sydney where i live these days and i'll definitely be surfing later the winds up a little bit from the southeast pretty strong but we've got plenty of swell around here at the moment it's about six feet um but we've had heaps of wind the last last two days so hopefully that sorts itself out this morning and and we get some cleaner cleaner waves where's your local
0: spots around where you are
1: um I am lucky enough to live about a block from the beach here at Wanda, which is the northern end of the beach front at Cronulla. And we have some really good reef breaks. I'm sure you've heard of ours. It's only about 10 minutes from my house, even though when it does get crazy, I don't surf it. (laughs) It's a pretty gnarly wave on your back end. And um, yeah, I'll leave it to the crazy natural footers. But uh, we have Voodoo, which is a really good left and right legy reef break is my favorite wave around here shark island you've probably heard of that as well shark islands are crazy hollow right they're all uh five minutes ten minutes from my house so there's some great waves around this area
0: there's always this uh stereotype about uh, you know the west coast of america hawaii and then australia that you've got pumping waves all the time but i can imagine it's pretty much like the uk it's quite a hit and miss sometimes what's the consistency like
1: You know what, if we were talking last October, November, I'd be screaming at you just going, I can't believe it. It's been flat for so long. We've had no waves. Does it ever break? You know, I last time I saw waves, I can't remember. But because we're in January 2022, it has been pumping since the first day of the year. We've had a cyclone Seth on the Gold Coast. Fortunately, I was up there for a family holiday. It wasn't, uh, didn't, didn't chase us Well, we were up there, um, with my, with my wife, Jess, and my two kids and, um, and Cyclone just happened to show up and snapper got eight feet and pumping and Kira same. And I was uh, lucky enough to get a bunch of waves. And then, um, I just, that was the first two weeks of the year. And then we finished our family holiday down the South coast in the Ulladulla region and again another another cyclone um sent a really nice north swell down there so the start of 2022 is uh could nearly pinch myself we've had so many good waves on the east coast of australia
0: it's been kind of similar here like you know what we're in january now and i've i've probably surfed more in the last sort of like two or three weeks since christmas it's been a it's, it's been pretty cool to be honest with you plus i'm in the fact i'm in a bit of a transitional phase of my life i'm not going to give bleeds you my life story but i'm literally just about to leave the military after 22 years so i'm just kind of like trying to trying to get my uh, trying to get my bearings on everything you know is this real life i don't know <laughs>
1: <laughs> well that must be pretty different so h- how long were you in the military
0: i was in the i was in the uh, royal marines for 22 years
1: awesome that's that's the exact amount of years i was on the on the world tour so uh, i know what you're i know what you're feeling to trans translate into something different and uh you know a start of a or the end of something great it must have been good for all that time and um and then yes yeah, starting a new life it's i know i know how it feels
0: how did you find that because you know you you've just said that you spent quite a lot of time on, on tour and coming off that and in the military, they they like to say there's this transitional period where you do a bit of resettlement, you do some courses, you know, for whatever you what you're going to do. I know it's a little bit different because uh, you know being in the surfing community and you've got your sponsors and stuff, you can almost like fall into something like that. But what what do you miss the most about about being on tour?
1: Um, the challenges, like you do you do anything for so long it just becomes, you know, I, I really believe in your subconscious doing, um, you know, you end up doing something so long, your subconscious kind of takes over and you get better at it and you refi- you get refined at it. And when you stop that, at first, there's like a holiday period of about six months, eight months where, you, you know, for me, when I finished the tour, it was like, I just needed a rest. The reason I finished the tour was I just didn't have any more go left. You know, I was 36. I'd been doing it since I left school. And to stay at that level of intensity of training and surfing and showing up and being able to put on those performances, you know, to make a final, in, in that two weeks, there's a contest on, you got to show up a fair few times and you're just going as hard as you possibly can. So that, that was the part that I just was like, oh, I can't do that anymore. But the surfing part, paddling out at the best parts, the best breaks in the world with only another guy out. That was, that's something I really miss. Um, and performing. I really enjoyed performing in front of a crowd. Um, and you know, I loved having hard heats. I loved loved having hard like really good heats against my friends and just getting going out and you know, when you're against someone that's really good and you're both getting 8s and 9s and putting on a great performance, there's nothing like it.
0: How did you find the the transition of the tour because you must have been in that still part of the tour when you joined when they were still going to like, you know, some of the crummy places uh I, I'm going to I don't know Manly, for instance, like a beachy, but then as yeah. it went on, you know, bugs started pulling things out to make it like the dream tour. So you go into like the best places with the best, best surfers. Did, did you, did you feel that transition in a way, or, you know, is it just something as, as a collective as the ASP and the, and the pro surfers on the tour were kind of getting a bit fed up of it and they're like, right, let, let's just go and find some really cool places to go instead.
1: Yes, um, the, I was in that transition. Um, it was really hard for me. I'm a bigger guy. Like I'm 90, 90, when I was on the tour, I was, you know, like late 80s, 88 kilo. Um, so going, chasing the summer, chasing the crowds to get bums on the beach, that philosophy didn't really suit me. And I was always, you know, I had some good results and I was always just hanging in there and you know the movement started with Barton Lynch and Damien Harbin. They were the surfers representatives on the ASP board. And I'm really good friends with both those guys, especially Damien Harbin. He took me under my wing when I was young, and I traveled with him a little bit. And um those guys were just like, "What are we doing at these places? There's pumping ways around the world. We want to have our our contests in, in, really good ways. And they were the guys that were sitting on the ASP board saying the surfers, this is what they want. And they're not gonna, they're not gonna budge. And, you know, thankfully, um, uh, Gordon Merchant from Billabong, Alan Green from Quicksilver, uh, Claw and Brian Singer from Rip Curl, those guys really listened and they are the core sponsors of the, of the events at the time. And those guys really listened to surfers. They sponsored most of the surfers to go around on the tour, and we we're like, we we just want to go to the better places to put on better performances, put on better shows, and make and make the tour, uh, you know, a better a better product for people to watch. And so those two guys started it, and um, I ended up on the on the ASP board as a surfer's representative once those guys retired, and. Fortunately enough, it was when Rabbit Bartholomew was the president. And he was our best ally. You know, there was myself, Kieran Perro, Jake Patterson, and Sonny Garcia and um, Greville Mitchell. And um, and Rabbit really listened to us, and 90% of the time on any vote for something to go forward, he'd 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 support the surfers and and just, you know, I could go on forever in, in a detailed description of that, but that, that there turned the tour into the dream tour. And we ended up going to all these fantastic locations and getting fantastic waves. And it, I think it was one of the key things to, to where the WSL is today.
0: Where, where were some of the best places that you like to surf? Because there must have been, you know, like, like there is now. I mean, I know they've changed it up a little bit, changed the uh, changed from pipe from the end to the start. But wh- where were some of the best places that you always look forward to going to?
1: I'm a goofy footer and I like all the big laughs. Um, and yeah, there you go. So Tahiti, Chopu, um, really enjoyed that event. Finished second to Andy Irons one year there and made the quarters most years I was in the event. Love that event. Fiji, um, yeah, uh, the Quicksilver Pro, Tabarua was incredible. And um, uh, Mandaka, Mandaka was a fantastic wave, um, all lefts. <laughs> Um, though those kind of waves suited me. So I knew I was going to get a good result and, and maybe win, which, uh, fortunate enough to win Fiji and Mandaka. So, uh, yeah, I, 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 you know, it went from when we were at the beach breaks and doing that stuff, it nearly felt like work, but then when it turned to these real waves and it was more like, all right, we're here to put on a show. And I think the guys that had that attitude and, um, and just wanted to go out there and experience the waves uh, in the competition form at format were the ones that shine.
0: How did you find your, how did you fare with your forehand and your backhand? Cause so most of the waves there you said, I mean, like say I, I'm a goofy foot as well, but I actually prefer right-handers to left-handers. So I prefer my backhand um, I, find, I find riding on my backhand a little bit better. Were you the opposite? Did you, did you prefer the forehand waves to the backhand waves?
1: No, I, I don't really care which way I go. I lived in Tweed Heads, which is the Cool and area, for 25 years. And, you know, that's Snapper Rocks, that's the Superbank. So as a goofy foot, I live there. Um, it was close to my sponsor, Billabong. and the training up there as a professional surfer is just phenomenal. Like you take off on a wave, you you can do 15 turns. You know, you're on your feet actually on your surfboard longer. So it's the best place to train as a professional surfer. So I lived on all those right-hand points, but then again, I'd go away and do really well in all these lefts. So I just like the challenge of either way, Um, you know, turning up at a different location. there's, There's different things you need to do on your backhand and forehand. And um, some people, yeah, like yourself, enjoy going right. I'm not sure if you have surf rights more than your forehand, or but I, I, I'm sure. I, and look, I'll, I'll put my coaching hat on now. I always, it doesn't matter who it is. I start diving in and going, "Okay, we need to make this guy go left." <laughs> I start diving in and thinking, "What? Why? Why, why doesn't he like going left?" There'd be something that you don't approach that wave going left as you do with the right it will be twisting your body around maybe foot placement or something like that i'm sure we could uh we could sort that out for you mate
0: yeah i've been uh doing do you know uh clayton the neighbor do you
1: i've heard that name yes
0: yeah so he he's um he's an ex uh, ct uh surfer and they've they've come up with this uh surfing program and they talk about foot placement it's a non it's an online thing but it's really like piecemeal broken down it's pretty cool and i've been trying to work, work with this stuff that he's been doing it's very much so like i'm um i find when i'm jumping up i'm almost like surfing jeff hackman back in the 70s where my feet are kind of like you know splayed out a little bit and that means i can't rotate my hips around a little bit more so i'm trying to work on that a little bit but uh, you get a bit carried away sometimes when the waves are good and you just forget everything and you just kind of go into your your old habits again.
1: Yeah, if you look at some of the greats like Tom Curran, uh, Tom Carroll, uh, Joel Parkinson, Mick Fanning, they all seem to drop their back knee down really low. Like when I'm coaching these days, I always ask a kid if he can like, I'm like, squat down to the ground, and you and people either bow their, their knees outwards or they'll bow them inwards. Um, to get that really nice flowing style, like some of the greats, you want your knees to bow inwards, and that really helps um, on a surfboard because when you drop your back knee down, you still have really good, pardon me, control of the board. And you can change your center of gravity really easy up and down. So that's the one thing that I always look at when I'm coaching somebody and and try and change them to that knock knee stance a little bit if they they can. Um, They don't always do it, and it doesn't mean they're not going to be a great surfer, but it is something like Gabriel Medina when he was a kid didn't really have that stance, and he worked on it really hard um, even yeah, since there's a, there's a bunch of kids we could bring up that are best in the world now and we we'll kind of turn that around and became and just just helps make you more versatile and makes your center of balance a bit better.
0: I was just about to say I read a few articles over the years and you were quite renowned for being known as the guy with the knock knee style. you know that, that back knee sort of like bent right in, almost you know loading your, re- loading your front foot. And uh, if you go back and, and look at some of the other guys like Oki and Tom Carroll and those guys, they're all very much like power-based, you know, slightly bent knees. And when they come to do big carving turns off the top, it's all very power-based. And I think you were one of the first people, really, that I, I've seen that really adopted that kind of new... not Not that it was new, but, you know, that kind of knee flowy style where you kind of compress and elevate and it was really noticeable in it?
1: For a while there, my feet were too close together and I was losing control. So, um, and it has to do with the rocker in a surfboard where I was standing at a certain time, the rocker, was the, the, the main curve in my rockers were, were a long way back in the board. And that's when boys were riding longer boards also. So it actually looked, I think the boards being longer and narrow and straighter actually made it look more than what it is now. Um, But I had to work on that a little bit and, and widen it out um, to become more versatile. So that was the area in my early twenties, mid twenties when I was starting to get results on the world tour that I had to really work on and, and, and spread them out a little bit to get a little bit more stability and to be able to get that, you know, you go up into a turn, your fins come loose, or something happens. The best thing you can do is be as low as you can on your surfboard, and you got way more chance of making it. So it was just changing those fundamentals around a little bit to um, to uh, make sure that happened. And um, yeah, so I was too knock kneed at one point.
0: <laughs> I love I love kind of firing this question at people like yourself about when you were growing up. Uh, you basically taught yourself how to surf and there aren't, there weren't really that many like surfing coaches and strength and conditioning coaches like, you know, a lot of the pros have these days or the guys that are coming up through the QS. How how did you kind of develop that style? Was it just a kind of watching those VHSs and watching, you know, the, the guys that were really good or just sitting on the beach and watching them and kind of emulating them?
1: When I was in my mid-teens, I used to watch Aki surf, like, I probably wore out a dozen VHSs watching Aki's style. And when he when he first started riding Rusty Prezendorf's surfboards, I was just in a trance watching Aki. I was like, Oh, my God, this is so incredible. The way he approaches the wave, the way he uses his shoulders um even just the little bits he put on with the look backs after a really big backhand hit out of the lip um that stuff early days hockey i was just like oh this is this is incredible and i and i took a lot from that um, once we're on tour i was uh one of my best mates is mike parsons and um he took me under his wing as well when I was young, and he used to pretty much coach me or talk to me before every heat. Um, we used to surf with him a bunch, used to stay with him and travel around the world with him. So right up to when I was surfing for world titles against Sunny Garcia and Andy Irons, Mike Parsons was there as pretty much my coach. So um, yeah, so on the tour, we didn't have the coaches, but we used to help each other. You'd be traveling around the tour, splitting costs with someone, you know, the rent a car, the hotel, um, and you'd help each other out. You know, you, if it was places that you needed a caddy, cause there was a good chance you were going to break a surfboard. Um, you, you the guy you are staying with was your, he was your man. He was your pit crew. So, uh, yeah, I think that's where the great coaches came from today. Um, I used to, Uh the year the couple of years there when Aki was going for the world title, I traveled with him. I helped him, I coached him, he coached me. Um at the same time when Aki won the world title, I got my some of my best results I'd ever had on the world tour because I had Aki in my corner. Um, yeah. So and and we were just one team, you know, like there was always guys traveling together and they're a good partnership and they'd, you know, but and they'd they both get good results from each other, from helping each other out. How did
0: you find that transition from going from finishing the tour in 2005? And I know you went and uh, coached Joel Parkinson for a bit. And I I find this quite intriguing uh, because if I'm in the water with somebody that's, you know, my friend, and I see them not doing something right. Look, I'm not, I'm not perfect by any means of the imagination, but I'm kind of like, well, you know, maybe turn your foot this way or try and bring your, you know, your back hand in a little bit more so your arms are bent. And sometimes they just look at me and they go, I can see it in their face and I'm thinking, What the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> you know? How, how, how did that kind of go with you guys? Because it, it must be well. It must be kind of weird being sort of the same level as somebody like Joel, for instance, and and a a pro teaching a pro how to surf. I I always kind of find that a a weird comparison.
1: You know what? That's a really good question because the best surfers in the world have taken on board a lot of advice from their peers or their mentors to get to where they are. Um, And, uh, you know, they had a lot of respect for 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 the person telling them what they they thought they should do um of course these guys are the best in the world so it's not like you got to reinvent the wheel to make these guys surf good but if you want to win out of the world's best you know there's a there's a lot of these little refinements you need to make and um joel parkinson was a great listener wasn't afraid of you you know, I could I could say anything to Joel, and I and I wouldn't hurt his feelings. Um, you know, if I if I ripped in hard enough, it'd just become a joke, and we'd start laughing. And, and then, you know, he was really good. at he just like just take just just approach this part just a little bit more like this, and he'd go out and do exactly that. Or every time he was he was a dream to coach, and he wanted to learn. He just was, you know, you could. You could nearly feel him siphoning the information out of you every time that you chat. He just wanted more and more and more. Another person that's like that is like, I'm lucky enough to time-to-time to time, coach Caroline Marks at the moment, and it's 100 questions a day. What about this? What about that? She just wants all your information. She wants to know everything, and you can tell her nearly anything too. Hey, that that's that's good, but try it like this. It'll be better. Oh, yeah, okay. Like they light up. They go, what? that part of myself is going to be better. Incredible. Quick, let's go, let's go and try that. You know? So, so, and then you've got, you've got other people and they'll look at you like, what? what do you mean? I'm not doing that any good. And and they get all def- uh, defensive. They're the ones that are hard to coach. You know, you're not there to, you know, when you, this is one of the hardest things is, is reading the person as a coach. And the one thing you're constantly working on is reading the personality and and you're like, how am I going to inject some some good advice into this person without hurting their feelings or without them psychologically going off on some journey of oh, I'm not good enough or he thinks I'm not good enough or um, or what do you mean I do that really good you know any any of those it can go it can go off on any tangent so it's probably why I like coaching because that's a big challenge um, of uh, you know learning the personality and still getting some uh some information in there so they become a better surfer
0: do you almost have to say to them right look i I know i'm your mate but i'm taking my mate head off now i'm putting the coach head on now so this is the line in the sand you need to do this you need to do that or like give them a little bollocking and then it's kind of yeah all right and then you put the other head on and you're like "Ah, i'm back again
1: uh a sports psychologist that i've used for a long time bill nelson since i was a kid i always go back to him and um and he uh and he tells me all the time now i still talk to him about coaching and uh and he goes you got to give them all the information so that that they think they came up with the answer you know so you just keep prodding and and giving them the information till the light bulb goes off, and they're like, "What about this?" And you're like, "Yep, that's exactly what I want you to say." You know, and, and make it their idea. You know, if, if there's someone a bit low in confidence or they don't want you to think they don't know, you just try and keep feeding the information till they give you the answer, and then they 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 get confidence, and then they're off to, they're off to the races, and and you've you've managed to get that information in, and and they're off trying to use it, and hopefully it's a benefit
0: one of the things i really took away once was i'm a physical training instructor a pti in the Marines, so i do a lot of coaching assault courses strength and conditioning coaching all that sort of stuff and one one of the things one of my instructors said once is try and do as many instructional courses with lots of different people as possible so you can see the different styles that people have Yeah, even if you go to do one course with somebody that's really, really rubbish, you can take one thing away from that and you can almost like adapt it to the way that that you want to put yourself across. Because like you're saying there, that not everybody has the same way of learning or the same way of coaching. And I found that with jujitsu as well, that I assimilate information a lot better with certain people by the way that they put it across or break it down to other people. And that must be the same with like high level surfing coaching as well. You know, some people must um, have have that really good rapport with you, and other people, you know, might not. And that's where you kind of go, oh well, it's not working with me. But you know, try, try this guy over here, and, and it might work for you there.
1: For sure. And um, you know, some surfers on the tour have gone through every good coach there is on that 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 actually is in the profession probably looking for something that a coach can't deliver, but um, they've probably gotten something out of all those coaches to get to where they are. So, um, you know, I think that uh, if you feel for a surfer, if they feel they've got a synergy with somebody and that feels like it's a good relationship um, that they can, you know, stick with it and they'll, they'll get the results.
0: Are there any particular pick-up points that you find coaching coaching pros? Do, do, do a lot of them do the similar things, or is it just individual?
1: It's very individual. Um, we talk about the same stuff, but it'll be – there's a group of there's – a, there's, a, there's one kind of bag of tricks that you use to change things around it, and they're really simple ones. Like, people think, oh – best guys in the world it must be so technical what you guys are talking about yeah we probably use a bit of a different language to a point but we're still only using body movement uh, being in different places on the board um, being you know looking for where we can get energy out of the wave to go faster timing is something that um, is the most important once you're at that elite level timing where you're going to do your turn is the most important, no matter what, Um, you know, you're already there because you're a good surfer, but those little tiny timing changes can take a, a a five point wave into a seven or a 7.5 wave. So we're constantly looking at that kind of stuff, especially when you turn up to a new location, Someone might be going to the bottom of the wave too much, so they're missing that top, nice, sweet little part here that you know you get a really good turn out of the lip. So you shorten the bottom turn, or you know we're talking stuff like this all the way all the time to to get their best performance in that particular location. You
0: talk a lot about lineups as well, because there's lots of different locations, like really good locations, and they are obviously you know set lineups and boils that are in the water is that something that's talked about where to get, you know, the, the, pick the best peak to come from, from the direction of the swell and the wind? And that's where there's another technicality involved in that too.
1: Absolutely. And that's most of the talk that's going on. You know, you have a little bit of refining the technical side of riding the wave, but, you know, we're always looking at the forecasts, um, looking at the local weather, uh, you know, looking at how big the tides are to how they affect, with what direction swell, that's, yeah, the the whole time that we're we're pouring over all that information um, and talking about that information too. The best thing is most of these uh, contests you're, you know, and this is for someone like myself, you realize that you are pretty valuable to some of these top surfers because we keep going back to the same spots. And now I've been there about 30, 35 times around the world. I've been to Hosegore about that many times. I've been to, you know, Mandaka about that many times, been to Fiji about that many times, Bali, um, trestles, uh, you know, all these spots you've been there and you've seen every wind, every swell direction, every tide many, many times. And as a coach, that's a huge benefit because you've already got all that information and you've been there before. So you can pull out these uh, different things, especially for someone new on the tour uh, that have only been there a few times. It takes many years to see all those different um, moods of a wave. And um, yeah, the longer you are on tour, I think that really helps as a coach.
0: What's one of the the hardest places that you can compete surfing and and also coach somebody because you know th- there must be some like really cool places like you know Bells for instance is you know is a, is a right hand point break but w- what locations are uh, you know around the world did you find most challenging to coach and to surf in
1: any day at any of the locations on the WCT events when the waves are marginal and the contest should maybe not be on <laughs> but it's been called on for a reason of running out of time. Sometimes we start running out of time and the waves just haven't gotten that good. And it's like, okay, boys, you're out there. We've got to get this contest finished. They're probably the times, um, coming up with strategy or help your surfer, come up with strategy that can be really difficult because no matter what, there's going to be a little bit of luck involved out there because you you know, it could be a dying swell. And how long is that swell going to last? Do you wait with priority or do you just keep catching waves? because we know this swell's dying or that, you know, there could be a, a wind change coming or something. So when the conditions get marginal and you've got to start using a little bit of guesswork or a little bit of gut feeling work rather than just going down on true data on what the waves is going to do and, and what you're sure the waves are going to do. So I'd have to say marginal conditions anywhere is it's when it gets really tricky.
0: Talking about different events, I know once you left, you ended up uh, working for Billabung and became uh, one of the organisers for, um, you know, a, a lot of their events during your time there. As a, as a physical training instructor in the Marines, you know, one of my jobs is, is event organiser, but not like on the scale that you did. And it was quite difficult as an individual trying to do that because you're doing everything yourself. But was that quite a challenging thing for you to do as well?
1: It was a challenge, but um at the time I was working for Billabong and I was the contest director for a lot of their events I had a fantastic team around me the logistic guys the guys on the ground in that country that were setting up the event they'd done it many times before and they were we probably had the at that time I, I think we had the best team um on the tour so it was actually a pleasure <laughs> you know there was a lot of things that were getting done that I didn't even realize that were a challenge sometimes because they would let me just focus on the forecast and focus on us getting it the best ways. When you're contest director, your main objective is, is getting the best ways for every single heat of that contest over a two week period. And then make sure that everyone else gets their deliverables, like the media. Uh, make sure that er- everything's you know you're going to run in on time, so they can get the news feed out. So, and my team was amazing. So, um, yeah, it, it, at times it was difficult, um, and there was a bit of pressure. Um, I had one time in Tahiti; the the contest was finishing on a Sunday afternoon and the waves were going to be pumping on the Monday and it was technically out of the waiting period and the executives at Billabong were like it's going to cost us about $300,000 to take the contest over one day to the next day or we run today and it was not contestable but they were on the last day and we had to run. And they let me run the contest the day over the waiting period, which I don't know. It's only been done a few times and they understood that, you know, well, by the end of the Monday, they had a great news news feed of guys getting six foot barrels at Chopu and, um, and everything worked out, but it was a costly move to make sure that the surfers got better waves to finish that event. And, um, and the pressure it was of okay your it's your last call of spending another 300k to get this contest finished and when it comes to the end i'm always uh you know as a contest director i was always for the surfers to be in the best conditions at any cost
0: i could imagine for uh, you know a massive company like billabong 300 300- grand or three hundred thousand dollars extra to run something like it's probably like a drop in the ocean maybe i don't know i mean i don't know what the budget for is for these contests to run but
1: just for another 24 hours to run a surf contest um when you're already chopu is one of the most expensive events the budgets get up over about three million dollars um and it's one of the most expensive ones on tour you'd think so but even to a big company that's a lot of money in their marketing spend for the year that could have gone to something else just to run a contest an extra 24 hours. Um, but you know, at the time all the executives were hardcore surfers at billabong and they understood and they were happy to go for it.
0: I can imagine that's why Curl don't particularly put on that many of the search contests that often. I mean, I know the one, uh, ran run last year, uh, in mexico i think that was the first one for for quite a few years i can imagine the budget for that even just to move it around and it, it can be quite substantial as well uh, but they they're the those are kind of the contests that you know people want to see sometimes i think you know guys out of their element they don't normally surf every day and, and it's just a challenge for them too
1: absolutely and that's why i think um uh, you know, WSL did a fantastic job this year. Oh, sorry, last year 21 in getting events done during the pandemic. And the new spots like Merriweather Beach, it's my home beach where I grew up. They got they got their first WCT event, which was phenomenal. And you know, kids were just so excited. Like, I guarantee you, we're gonna end up with more kids. Well. Jackson Baker is from merriweather and he just made the tour and I, and I'm sure if that contest wasn't there there was a chance he he mightn't have made the tour he he might't have had that inspiration of watching the world's best at his home beach and 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 competing against them to get that that drive to to make the tour. so. There, Narrabeen, as well, like those contests, Narrabeen used to have the Coke contest. So, And watching the the best surfers in the world go to new spots, even, they're they're places that have good waves. Not necessarily as consistent as some of the uh, A-grade waves around Australia or the world, but um, it was great to see the world's best adapt and put on some massive performance in those locations.
0: How are you finding the the new format for the WSL tour, uh, you know, changing the finals um, to trestles and moving pipe from the end to the, uh, to the beginning? What, what's your opinion on that? I, put, I know you probably spoke about it quite a bit before, but.
1: Not having pipeline as the finishing event. I'm not convinced. I'm absolutely not convinced. I totally support WSL for having a go last year. It was such a weird year. So let's try something different. I thought that was a fantastic thing to do for 21. And I liked the last uh, event that they had at uh, Trestles Then had that surf off style format. Um, and you know what I, you know, and I'm going to, go off course a little bit here. The one thing I really like about what WSL have done recently is the qualification changes with the challenger tour. And to get into the challenger events, you have to get a certain place within your regional events, you know, top 10 or or whatever it is for your region, because it was getting so expensive for young guys just leaving school that wanted to be a professional surfer they'd need like 150 200 grand to travel the world and grind it out at you know 20 events around the world and it was you know we i, I really feel the old format we missed out on having some really good surfers on the wct just because of the way that format was where now we're going to get those surfers because they surf say, five, six, maybe eight events in their region, make the top ten, and then there's these six or eight challenger events that they just need to make sure they get ready for that, say, six to eight months and go in, and go in as hard as they can in these better locations, better events to make the tour. I love it. I just think it lowers the cost for, you know, if you've got a local kid in your area and it gives him a chance, you know, from your country to to get into that challenger series. And it just, you know, even to this, you know, it was a long time ago for me, but that, that transitional period from school going, okay, have I got it what it takes to become a pro surfer and that big challenge of, do I go and get a trade just in case, or do I go to university? Or do I go and have a go at being a professional athlete? That's one of the biggest decisions in your, in your life. And, and I really think that new format really it really gives the surfers a true indication of their performance if they're good enough. Um, but and and the cost isn't like out of control. So I really really think that was the that's the best thing I've seen happen in surfing in years. I think we're going to get a lot better surfers in that. This year in 22, they're after five events. I think they make a cut. I do not like it at all. The reason being is that those guys in those challenges, events, or even the guys that are on tour, you've busted your gut to get your place. You should have that. Maybe those five locations don't suit your style of surfing in the end. Few events suit your style of surfing. I just, I just don't think it's fair on the surfers that, they don't get their full year to try and prove that they're at that level to stay there and make a career as a top level you know ct surfer i i no matter how this year ends up i just don't think it's fair on the surface to be cut after five events when they've busted their gut to get there
0: i think one of the other things that must be quite fearful for guys like that is if you take um a couple of like the lower level guys that have like like you say have just made it onto onto the ct they must be shitting themselves because there's that extra external pressure on them to perform and if they don't perform they're basically going to be knocked back off and they have to start all over again but again it's you can argue it from the two sides of the fence as well. You've got the better guys as well. You know, you've got your Medinas, your Philip Toledo's and, and all the other guys at the top end of it, that they've also got that, you know, subconscious pressure as well that they have to perform. Otherwise, if they don't make, you know, the, the, the uh, was it the top top 12 or the top, no, the top 20, isn't it? I can't remember.
1: Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I, 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 I'm not sure of the numbers, but I just think that every surfer should have a chance to do a full year and and show what they got it's just i just don't think it's you know they've done it to package it better for tv they've done it so it's easier to to run the contest in one swell but not everything's easy you know like it's when it when it comes to the when it comes to you know when those changes are made at at, at the expense of a few surfers i disagree I disagree. I, I, am not, I'm not happy about it. I'm, I'm super bummed it's happening.
0: I think one thing that you touched on about five minutes ago is when you're talking about guys that are on the, um, on the QS is that you see all the guys in the media that have, that have kind of made it, but you never really hear about the guys that have been on, you know, the QS for like 10, 12 years and they never really hit the CT level and you'd never really You never really see where they go and like you're saying you've spent the majority of your adult life or your early 20s 30s trying to get to that level and if you don't make it and you don't hit a trade or something like that and your sponsors don't support you as well you never hear about those guys I mean I've never heard about them
1: yeah I, I hear about them all the time because I've tried to help a fair few of them transition through that period the surf industry, there's not as many jobs for surfers like that as there used to be. What are you? mid-20s to late 20s and you've decided not to take a trade uh, or go to university and study, which was, you know w- w- what your school grades could have you know would let you do. I think um, there's a lot of guys out there that it it was life-changing. It was life-altering. And it's probably not just surfing. I'm sure it happens in a lot of sports. Um, Because surfing, like, you know, I'm 53 this weekend. And I basically retired from my passion career when I was 36. You know, even though I went for 22 years, I was one of the longest serving guys ever on the world tour. My career only lasted 22 years, you know, and the last 15 odd years I've been doing other things, but my passion is still surfing, you know, so it, what you get on the front side of being a successful surfer, you you really got to think and be smart because at the end, you, you know, the body, the body just doesn't, it's not going to, you know, you know, Kelly's Kelly's managed to stay there for a long time. That's one guy, you know, everyone else in their mid thirties. And if you get to your late thirties, you've done really well. And then what are you going to do if you've made enough money? So you don't have to work anymore, but it's not even about the money. It's just about exercising the mind and, um, you know, getting that adrenaline rush that you've been doing for most of your career. There's huge adrenaline rushes from, even winning a heat and two foot waves in front of 30,000 people. And, um, you know, putting on a fantastic performance, there's, it's a huge adrenaline rush, beating, beating one of your peers or something like that. Where do you get that? You know, you, you've, you've got yourself well and truly addicted to it, you know, after years and years, and then you are like, you just left and people shaking hands down "Yeah, Well done. I love I love that heat that you had here or there. And And you really appreciate the accolades, but man, it's one of the hardest things I've done is working out where I can still get that rush. And I've managed to do it. I'm mountain bike. Um, Mountain biking, funnily enough, is not even in the surf. It gives me that rush. I'm not that, I'm not very good, but there's a lot of quick decisions you got to (laughs) make. Otherwise you (laughs) end up with shoulders that look like this. Um, you know, I don't know. You, it, you've
0: seen those bikes that you can ride on the sea now. I haven't seen anyone ride catching the wave on one of those yet.
1: No, but you know, you got you really got to challenge yourself to go and still get that same feed. Otherwise, you're going to end up in trouble. Or you know, it, it, it's everyone's looking for it. I still surf it. I still train to surf. I still go to the gym to make sure that I can surf well. Um, so. Because I still enjoy it so much, and I still enjoy trying. You know, even though I'm nowhere near the surfer I was, um, I still really enjoy trying to keep my level as high as possible, and that that helps as well. Um, yeah, so it's you know going off on a bit of a a, a bit of a course here, but um, yeah, pretty passionate about that part of um, looking after the surfers.
0: It's going to only get a little more difficult for them because coming out of the, you know, the tail end of this pandemic, more people have decided to, you know, grab a surfboard and jump in the water because it's easy access as well. And there's just going to be more people getting addicted to the sport that we love doing and. There's gonna, you know, I've noticed a noticeable amount of people that are just kind of what I'd call flotsam and and just floating in the water and getting in the way a little yeah. bit. But, you know, there's going to be more people coming through, more kids now, and there's only going to be more competition to, you know, to, to in those actual high competitive competitions for those limited spaces as well. I mean, have you have you noticed much of a a, a culture and a etiquette change uh, down where you are at the moment?
1: A little bit. I think it's up to the elders in the water to teach those people surf etiquette politely. <laughs> I think that that there is more people in the surf, but uh, and at times it's it's really hard. But I think you know everyone. It's it's the ocean. Everyone's entitled to be out there, and you know to anyone that's learning to surf, just you just got to read the play of the lineup and and read where you think you should be for your ability level and what style of waves you should be surfing for your ability level and read all that stuff and and read about surf etiquette and you'll have a way better time you'll have you'll you'll double triple what you'll get out of surfing if while you're learning to get to the level you want to get to you read and make sure that you check up on all that stuff. I think it's, you know, um, some people were like, Oh, straight away, I'm gonna go surf that shallow reef that is in my local area. And uh, you know, yeah, yeah, you got to challenge yourself. But you got to make sure you're there. You're not this the ocean is, is for everybody. So you got to make sure that you're thinking of others as well, while you're trying to challenge yourself
0: are you finding the transition well it's not a transition really is the 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 big turn of the circle with, uh, with with boards and stuff because i know twin fins mid lengths we call them mini or whatever the whatever yeah. people want to call them these days there's almost kind of like a big resurgence in in retro boards whether it's stingers channel bottoms i mean i, I surf a channel bottom twin fin now and it's the most amazing thing i've ever surfed but i think it just suits the way that i surf but there's a big resurgence in you know stuff that was came out of the thruster revolution before that it's now coming back again have you got involved with that a little bit you still stuck in the way that you know with a standard shortboard
1: i ride everything i ride everything from twin fins to Uh, normal high performance boards Uh, I've got a seven six mid-length twin fin I ride (laughs) um is that that big blue um, one that's beyond you um no that's actually a nine foot gun for a reef that's just out here when it gets good (laughs) with a bunch of the boys paddle paddle um this outer reef big blue is uh is the board that I pull out when it's when um yeah when fifths is good so yeah, I'm lucky enough, JS, who I finished my career with my my last half of my career with, I still work really heavily with him in surfboard design. Um, the new zero that just come out, I've got, I think most of them are still here. I've got about 30 surfboards that were the exact same file with, uh, with like just a tiny different flex using different materials and. I've got such a good relationship with Jason from from that time that he still relies on me to ride uh, all these prototypes before he goes to market with them, and I love it. It just keeps it keeps my mind, you know. Like when you're when you're surfing on the tour or you're a professional surfer, you're always looking for that magic surfboard, and you go through boards like you wouldn't believe. You probably get a uh, you know between every surfer gets between sixty and a hundred a year. And just going through those boards and, and, and learning about what new materials do, fin placement, different fin systems, um, all, all that about surfboards, um, I really love, I'm really passionate about. So I'm, I'm grateful that I still work in that space on surfboards. And my dad was a surfboard shaper, he still is. He's been shaping surfboards for over 50 years. So I grew up in a surfboard factory dad never really let me work in the surfboard factory because of the fumes and and the materials I always had it to fall back on so to speak but yeah we I ended up being okay at riding them so I never ended up in in the factory making them so I'm really passionate about surfboards I have uh I have so many boards it's ridiculous my wife just she's very 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 patient with me there's probably in this house we'd probably have about 60 60 surfboards and then at my dad's house i probably got about another 60 or 70 there as well so just from boards that i'd won contests on or i'd made the cover of magazine or i had memorable surfs on i just couldn't sell them i've still got them all so uh <laughs> i'm gonna pull them out soon actually and the ones that are documented very well um if there's you know great covers of surfer surfing or surfing life or stuff like that i still have most of those boards so we're going to get them out and and take photos of them and and tell stories about them here soon which will be i think it'll be great for everyone to see
0: i thought i was bad with just having 10 surfboards and i've called them down to five now (laughs) i could Uh, imagine I, I i could imagine having 60 in my house
1: I have I have I have a surfboard issue. I I I, I admit it. <laughs> I admit I have a surfboard issue. I um I'm going to go to Hawaii in the next few weeks. Here and my Hawaiian quiver just turned up, sitting right there, just turned up uh, yesterday. So, and it just gets me excited. I got f- like five brand new boards, R and D boards too, just stuff that Jason and I are working on if i like them he'll translate it to guys like connor coffin and um and julian wilson and those guys um he'll start putting it in their boards as well and and send it off for those guys so i enjoy being the first cab off the rank uh just r d some you know all the different changes
0: it's crazy thinking about you guys and how you like just trim thirds of foam off certain areas or take it take a bit of a rail down because you can you can feel that i remember uh, listening to an interview with tom curran and he was talking about fins and he was really deep at one point into different types of fins and and how sharp or um how much flexing that they had and i think at one point he was actually just making his own fins and putting them in i mean i i can't imagine getting to the point where i can like almost feel that underneath my feet it must be you know quite a unique experience really
1: yeah you really do like i'll tell you a funny story my dad when i was i still I've still got a bunch of my dad's boards he's 78 he's still shaping we still play around with with new designs and stuff and uh i was about 16 years old and i i'd broken my favorite board i had a couple of backups didn't like the backups at all and it was a were the biggest local event in Newcastle and he shaped me a board in the afternoon glassed it stayed at work till about four in the morning sanded it brought it to the beach in the morning I waxed it up went rode two ways on it and went nah I'm gonna ride the old one <laughs> in the contest and um, and then after that I got through my heat came up and I just there was something about the board I go, you're supposed to make this the same as the other one. He goes, it's not the same. And he hadn't told me what changes he'd done at all. And, um, and I go, it's got more nose rocker in it. I'm sure it's got more nose rocker in it. And he's just like, it has, it's got a t- I thought. I'd just put a touch more because it looked like the way it's going to be like this or like that. So just from feel, not being told and right, you know, you, you just learn, you know I've that's happened with jason before too he made me three or four boards and one of be a little bit different i'm like what'd you do to that one that's not that's not doing the same and he, you know stuff he wouldn't even tell me and i could feel it straight away so i guess it's from jump you know it's from surfing for so long and from um understanding what does what and and um and that kind of thing and yeah it just it it goes into this memory back you know like i I'll forget someone's name or I'll forget a year something happened, but I've got this mem- incredible memory of the feel of surfboards are all different. You know, I'll, I'll I'll pick up a board out of my collection of my boards that I'd won contests on. As soon as I put it under my arm, I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, I remember you. You know, it's like uh, there's this memory. There's like this hard drive, this surfboard hard drive in there.
0: Mate, uh, we've been talking for a while now. Have you got one story that sticks out the most through your entire surfing career that you can tell?
1: <laughs> um, yeah there's there's plenty the one that the the one I really enjoy is uh, is Matt Hoy um, Matt Hoy and I had the same babysitter that's how far we go back when uh, before we we're even in preschool or school. So we've been knocking around as kids. You know and we're still best mates so when he retired was in uh tavarua the year i think it was 2000 the year he re- retired no one had done anything for him and i was a bit concerned we're on tavarua and it was his last event he wasn't doing any more events he was retiring his career and i ended up winning the contest uh made everyone cry in the crowd i think so i called him up onto the stage and just handed him the first place trophy of the quicksilver pro at, uh, at sorry at fiji and gave it to him as a retirement gift so uh he still got it still sits in his house so uh yeah that, that was a great moment for me and, and for him beautiful mate uh
0: i'd like to finish off uh, a conversation uh with a quick fire round if that's all right yep so the first question is if you could surf one surfboard set up for the rest of one surfboard fin setup for the rest of your life would it be single fin twin fin quad bonza thruster or finless thruster your favorite surfer and why and you can't say yourself
1: no i would never say myself <laughs> My favourite surfer, and why Joel Parkinson? Because it's effortless and uh, high performance.
0: Here's one I've never put in before. Your favourite surfboard wax? Sex wax. It's a standard one, I reckon.
1: Yep. I haven't been able to use anything else for years.
0: The worst and the best person to share a lineup with?
1: Uh, Tom Carroll.
0: Well, as in the worst and the best or both? Both. <laughs> <laughs> I, think that's, I think that's a lot of people's uh, answers to that. They've got one person that they hate and love to share it with too. Yep. If you had one surf break to surf for the rest of your life, what would that be?
1: Probably G-Land.
0: I actually surfed G-Land 15 years ago. Uh, I couldn't afford to stay in the surf camp there. So I ended up staying in, um, one of the, uh, like the, the park rangers huts. Don't know how we got into that. I think I, I was cool. with, with, with a couple of locals and, uh, yeah, it was absolutely massive. And I could only surf race tracks. Cause that's the only bit I could get out of. And I wasn't really that experienced. then either, surfing reefs and I just got absolutely pounded crazy.
1: Yeah, that was incredible.
0: Luke Egan, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast and uh, thanks for sharing their stories and happy birthday for this weekend too.
1: Thanks very much. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Cheers, mate. Cheers.
0: And that's it. If you like the podcast, please like, share and subscribe on your podcast provider and leave a little review on Apple Podcasts if you use Apple Podcasts. Thanks for listening.